0: Hey friends! This episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Brillo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue our journey through our lung cancer series. Guys, I'm still just in awe of the great discussion that we had with, with Greta Dahlberg last week. I'm, I'm just so glad that she was able to, to join us on that show. And, you know, I can't believe how much we discussed in such a short period of time, but super high-yield content. Yeah,
1: and as we get into this episode where we really start talking about the histologic diagnosis of lung cancer and some of the staging information in lung cancer. Highly recommend that you check that episode out if you haven't, because it's going to give you an understanding of how we get some of the staging information that we're going to talk about.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I really picked a terrible week to be away. Uh, That was was a pretty awesome discussion. Definitely looking forward to our follow-up on it today.
1: Yeah, we're glad you're back, Dan. I know that the attending life, you've got your big kid pants on and now, you know, you're too cool for us. But we're glad, we're glad you took the time to, to come back and, and hang out with us today.
2: Don't be ridiculous, Vivek. I've always been too cool for you guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and listeners, we'd love for you to also be a part of these conversations. So if you find something interesting that we say or you want to follow up on something, we really do welcome you to reach out to us via any of our social media outlets, including our Twitter or our Instagram. And we certainly love to hear from our listeners whenever we can. And we appreciate you guys listening to us as always. So without further ado, let's move on to the show. All right, guys, how are we
1: feeling today? Doing pretty good. More importantly, I want to know, Dan, how was France?
2: Oh my goodness, France is fantastic. You know, good food, good wine, amazing scenery, and and people there are way nicer than their reputation generally (laughs) abroad. Everyone was super friendly. So yeah, highly recommend. If you can get out there, please do it.
0: On average, how many baguettes do you think you consumed in a day, Dan?
2: Uh, It's a pretty shameful amount, to be honest with you. I want to say uh, we probably averaged about one and three quarters per person per day. And so they're only a euro there. So it's like it's it's such an an, easy decision.
1: That's insane.
2: Yeah. I I came here and I paid $5 for a baguette and I just I just I wanted to die. It was terrible.
1: (laughs) I you know since you've been in France me and my wife rewatched Ratatouille just in honor of, of uh, it was so good it was really yeah. good so you know bef- uh, re- really the point of this episode is everybody should watch Ratatouille and go to France I think that's really what we're doing here at the fellow on
0: call <laughs> I think we should just yeah, wrap Remy it, is we should just wrap it up right there and call it a day I think we're done for the day
1: I think so See you later <laughs> <laughs>
0: Related, but not related. I did want to delve a little bit further into our lung cancer discussion that we started last week. And so just to remind you all and our listeners, I had presented a case and, you know, I'll present it again briefly. And maybe we can kind of talk a little bit more this time, focusing on the, the histology and some of the staging, which as we've discussed in prior episodes is super important because this is how we determine not only prognostic information for our patients, but more importantly, what treatment options are available to them. You guys game? Yeah, let's go ahead and do this. All right. No doubt. So this is a 65 year old male with the past medical history of asthma, hypertension, tobacco use disorder who had come into the ER for severe abdominal pain. And as part of that workup, he had gotten a CT of his abdomen and pelvis, which on the CT scan they had incidentally noted a 1.5 centimeter speculated nodule in the in the periphery of his lung. But again, the gentleman was in the ER for abdominal pain, was noted to have diverticulitis, was treated with antibiotics, and you know he was asymptomatic from the lung nodule perspective, so he was referred to as PCP. And his PCP had then subsequently ordered a dedicated CT scan of the chest with contrast, which again demonstrated a spiculated nodule in the right lower lobe of approximately 1.6 centimeters in diameter. And so, you know, as we discussed with, with Greta last week, it's so important for us to remember that if the nodule is noted incidentally on, on some other type of imaging, to get a dedicated CT scan of the chest. And also, whenever we refer patients to pulmonology, whenever possible, if they have prior CT scans of the chest, we should include those. Because as we learned, the rate of growth is actually almost more important than the size itself. And then lastly, what we also took away was, yes, PET scans can be helpful, but the rate of growth is even more concerning sometimes than what the FDG avidity is. And furthermore, if you're not able to get a PET scan before the patient can see a pulmonologist, that's okay. You should still send them to POM that they can start their workup.
2: Yeah, that was a great recap. And, you know, PET CT, we do think of it as being such an incredible tool, and it is in a lot of ways. But There's a size resolution issue where if lesions are below a certain size, they may not show up on the PET component of a PET CT. And similarly, there's nothing to say that a lesion in the lung came or started in the lung. It could always be a tumor from somewhere else that maybe is not a type of tumor that takes up the FDG contrast agent most of our PET scans are based on. So definitely a good warning there and, and definitely rely on your CT scan.
0: So in, in light of that discussion, though, and knowing what we know now, before we sent this patient over to pulmonary, we were able to find a CT scan from a couple of years ago when the patient had a pneumonia, and actually there was no signs of malignancy at that time. Luckily for us, we were able to get a PET scan done before his pulmonary appointment, which did show a 1.6 centimeter lesion in the right lower lobe that was FDG avid, and then there was also some FDG avidity noted in the mediastinum. And then they had scheduled him for an ebus with biopsy of the lesion of concern. And one thing I wanted to ask you all. Why did they also make a referral for PFTs? i That was something that I wasn't quite sure of, yeah, I
1: think I think there's two really important things about this case and and I'll get to why they had PFTs, but I just want to point out one thing. When we got the PET scan, we you know it can be helpful in the sense that now we're in this area of we need mediastinal staging. So when we think about lung cancer, We need to know which lymph nodes are involved. So in some tumor types, it's all about the number of lymph nodes involved. In lung cancer, it's which lymph nodes are involved. And sometimes the PET can guide us to say, if there's, let's say, avidity in the mediastinum, maybe there's mediastinal lymph nodes involved. But like Greta talked about last week, that EBUS is going to be the biggest thing that helps us because that ultrasound can look at some of these lymph nodes and lymph nodes that are greater than five millimeters. They will biopsy even if they're not pet avid because there could represent micrometastatic disease to the lymph nodes. But in this case, pulmonary is also getting PFTs, not just because they're pulmonologists, but because many of these patients are treated with surgery. So patients with lung cancer that are low stages, which we'll get to here soon, they're treated with surgery. And one of the important things you need to know prior to a surgery is what is this patient's native lung functions? What are, is their pulmonary reserve and could they tolerate something like a
0: surgery? That makes a lot more sense. So essentially you're kind of anticipating what the next steps may be. So it's best to do that kind of upfront. So while we anxiously await the outcome of the eBus with biopsy, I thought maybe we could take a step back and talk a little bit about histology. Because uh, from my recollection about reading about this in preparation for for fellowship, there's like a laundry list of different types of histologies that can be associated with lung cancer. And so I was Hopeful that maybe you guys can shed some light on some of the important nuances that we should take away.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the b- biggest distinction is small cell lung cancer versus non-small cell lung cancer. And the reason why that's so important, small cell lung cancer is a much more aggressive type of cancer that grows extremely quickly and is associated with more paraneoplastic phenomenon that we learned in medical school whereas the non-small cell lung cancer can generally have a higher cure rate is often easier to treat than these patients with small cell lung cancer. So that's the first big distinction to make when we use histology to do that. Before I ask Dan what some of the histologic IHC markers are and remember we have an episode earlier on in our in our podcast discussing IHC and I highly recommend you listen to that if you if you haven't already. But I wanted to mention one thing before I asked Dan about which markers would be present. We often learn that smokers have squamous cell carcinoma and non-smokers are more commonly going to have adenocarcinoma, but at the end of the day, smokers are going to have more lung cancer in general, whether it's adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma. It's just that if there is a non-smoker, they're more likely to have adenocarcinoma than squamous cell, but overall, within the adenocarcinoma category you're still having smokers comprising the highest majority of the patients that develop that type of cancer. So to backtrack, we have small cell versus non-small cell. And within non-small cell, you have adenocarcinoma versus squamous cell carcinoma. So Dan, tell us a little bit more about what the IHC and morphology would look like in some of these tumors.
2: Yeah, sure thing. So the uh, adenocarcinomas are definitely going to be your most common, you know, like you said, regardless of smoker, non-smoker. Much, much more common in patients with lung cancer who do not smoke, but still the most common overall. In these, on IHC, you tend to see positivity for TTF1, CK7 or cytokeratin 7, and Napsin A. So, you know, it is an adenocarcinoma. These are glandular mucus-producing cells, and so you tend to see markers associated with epithelium and that sort of tissue type about half of all of the 225,000 cases of lung cancer per year they're diagnosed are adenocarcinoma in histology. Coming in at next most common, squamous cell carcinoma, uh, like you said, more common among smokers than among non-smokers. And that's just because you know these squamous cells, they are a tough type of cell. They're the, the cells that line your oral cavity and other mucous membranes that interface with the outside world. And so if you think about smoking being heat insult to the tissue, one of the ways the body tries to defend itself is with squamous metaplasia, and when that goes wrong, even further than from just metaplasia to neoplasia and cancer, squamous cell carcinoma can arise. And so, in these tumors, you do tend to see p sixty three positivity, and these tumors are just uh, just a little under a quarter of all um, all lung cancers diagnosed, about twenty three percent. Fortunately, small cell lung cancers are the less common of these two varieties, non-small cell and, and small cell. And uh, only about 12.5% of lung cancers diagnosed end up being small cell. And like you said, this is essentially a, an oncologic emergency. When you see a small cell tumor, they move so quickly that you really have to get people to treatment as soon as you possibly can. On IHC, you tend to see chromogranin positivity and synaptophysin positivity, both markers for neuroendocrine tissue type because these are neuroendocrine tumors. And that's kind of why they are separated off on their own. They have a completely different biology and a completely different behavior from the epithelial cancers that make up the non-small cell uh, category.
1: And just to pivot on some of the things that Dan had mentioned, TTF1 is something that I throw into my head as if I see TTF1 positive, I commonly start to think lung cancer in general, except in the case of squamous cell lung cancer. TTF1 is often negative, and, you know, these are things that you should look at a chart. We're mentioning it now, just so you've heard it once. But, you know, take some time to think about these. And and I think it's very beneficial to remember TTF1, think lung. For squamous cell carcinoma, think about on morphology, keratin pearls, and P63. Those are very common markers. So it's just a couple things you need to memorize. And then for small cell or really any neuroendocrine tumor, you'd see synaptophysin, chromogranin positivity, that's any neuroendocrine tumor. And then if you're thinking if, if this is a lung in origin or a small cell neuroendocrine tumor, like small cell lung cancer, that's often also going to have TTF1. So if you're going to remember anything, remember TTF1, think lung, synaptophysin chromogranin, think a neuroendocrine type of tumor, whether that's small cell lung or not, and then keratin pearls and P63 for squamous cell carcinoma.
0: And if I'm doing my math correctly, We're short maybe about 15% or so, which means I I take away that that is the other types of lung cancer, correct? That's right. And one other thing
1: I want to mention, sometimes you can have a mixed adenosquamous carcinoma, for example. So within that, again, you're making the big distinction, small cell versus non-small cell, but you can have something like an adenosquamous features. And the other thing that's really important, that's really something we're going to touch on in future episodes, this histology can change a patient could transform into small cell lung cancer from one of these more less aggressive non-small cell lung cancers. So that's another important thing. When you look at these biopsies, don't just always assume, oh, we're just re-biopsying just to make sure, you know, that it's not squamous now, it's not adeno now. Really what you're doing sometimes is saying, did it transform into small cell? And that can happen. It's not the most common thing that happens, but it can happen. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. And that other category, I mean, it's just important to remember that cancers in general are cells gone very wrong. And so sometimes it's not always possible to categorize your tumor type. And there's this large cell carcinoma variety. There's poorly differentiated carcinoma. There's a lot of different, you know, smaller categories. But at the end of the day, these three that we talked about are, are really the, the bulk of, of uh, lung cancers that are out there. So.
0: I won't keep you guys hanging for too much longer. I will tell you what the pathology for our patient showed. So his right lower lobe mass was biopsied and the IHC was positive for TTF1, CK7, and Napsin A. So in light of our discussion that we literally just had, this was consistent with what the pathologist said, which was adenocarcinoma. And furthermore, as part of that, part of that investigation that they did when they did the EBUS, they had also sampled the mediastinum, and so um, I'm going to need some help with, with what it is that they're talking about, but they specifically mentioned something that said station 4R, and here they said that the cells appeared benign. But then at station seven, they said that the cells had prominent nucleoli, abundant cytoplasm, and also had immunohistochemistry consistent with TTF1, and they also favored adenocarcinoma of lung origin. So what are these station things that they're talking about, and why is this significant?
1: Yeah, this is a really, really important point. And I just want to mention again, EBUS is endobronchial ultrasound. Definitely listen to that pulmonary episode if you haven't already. And it's good for this mediastinal staging. It's good at getting some of these central targets like the things in the mediastinum. What pulmonologists have done and what radiologists have done is they've numbered lymph nodes to make it a little bit easier to know what's going on. So they, I'm going to make this as simple as possible. You can look at a picture, and, and we'll link one into our show notes about what exactly these stations are, but in general a single-digit lymph node is more centrally located in the mediastinum and are higher-risk lymph nodes. Because if you imagine if you had a, a lung cancer mass that was in the periphery, somehow it had to travel through some lymph node networks or travel all the way to those central lymph nodes. So in general, those are more higher-risk lymph nodes. So single-digit, think mediastinal nodes are more central nodes. And double-digit nodes are more peripheral nodes, whether that's hilar or intrapulmonary nodes. And they're And those are closer to the original tumor, so they haven't spread as far. So we think maybe that patient isn't quite as high risk as the patient who's got more central lymph node involvement in the mediastinal area. So single-digit nodes, more central towards the mediastinum, higher risk because it had to travel farther away from the original tumor site double-digit nodes or more peripheral nodes, and we think of those as low risk because they haven't traveled quite as far from the original tumor site. And that's the most important thing. One of the other things that you mentioned was that it was station for R. Whenever you see the R, that's right, and if you see an L, that's left. And that tells you if it's the node is on the same side or the contralateral side. And that's important when we think of staging in the TNM, which we'll discuss here in just a few minutes.
2: Just remember that the, the lymphatic system is essentially the body's storm drain system. So when you see spread in regional lymph nodes, if you see tumor in nodes that are further away from the primary site, it didn't teleport there. It had to go through all those other nodes. So you're thinking about tumor that spread further, just like you said.
1: And Ronak, one thing I remember is, is when you were a first-year fellow and I was sitting there eating my quesadilla from the cafeteria because I would always get those quesadillas. It was the only good thing at the hospital. You asked me one time, So I've got this patient and they have lymph node involvement, you know, what do I need to think about? And tell us now, Ronick, what do we think about now if, let's say, if this patient had lymph node involvement or just in general for solid
0: tumors? So if there is nodal involvement, there will be some sort of systemic therapy that's needed. That is been, that's a recurring theme that we'll see over and over again throughout oncology and something that I really, really, really want to emphasize. So again, if you take away nothing else from our nodal discussion, just remember if there's nodal involvement, there's going to be some sort of systemic therapy. And remember, you can always go look up what that systemic therapy would be. So don't worry about that right now. Well, that's, that makes a whole lot more sense, guys. I think the logical next step from here is to then talk about staging So we have all of our information. We know the size of the mass, how far it's spread, the nodal involvement. And so I think it's probably a good time for us to put it all together. And with the goal here being that the staging will help us not only determine what therapy options are available to the patient, but it can also help us with providing prognostic information. So... It's also important to remember that the TNM staging that we're going to discuss is for non-small cell lung cancers. And then we'll briefly talk about small cell after because it's completely different. So with non-small cell lung cancer, the T is for the size of the tumor based on imaging. And we divide the size uh, from T1 to T4. And again, it's probably best just to look this up because it's a bunch of numbers, but T1 to T4.
1: And even with that, you'll hear people talk about, oh, is that a T1A or a T1C? And again, look it up. Eventually, as you do this more and more, you'll start to internalize it. But Dan, tell us a little bit more about how you think about the N staging for non-small cell lung cancer.
2: So unlike the T's, where you do end up having subcategories under your T numbers, there's like a T1C and a T2A and all these different things, N is a little bit more straightforward. It's just N1, N2, N3, and N0. N zero, obviously, that's the best one. That's where there are no lymph nodes involved. N one, you just have sort of the, the nodes that are the closest to the primary tumor. So those are intrapulmonary or the parabronchial and hilar lymph nodes. So your double-digit lymph nodes that gets you an N one. And like we'd mentioned before, if there's nodal involvement, that means systemic therapy. So as long if, if the number is something above zero, you're going to be uh, recommending some form of systemic therapy as a part of their treatment plan. N2 is where you have ipsilateral or nodes on the same side of the tumor in the mediastinum or in the subcorinal area. And oftentimes, this means that there's going to be some form of radiation involved just because those tumor cells have moved a little further away from their original site. But again, mostly just you need systemic therapy. And finally, N3, that's where there's any nodal involvement on the opposite side of the chest from the primary tumor. So contralateral mediastinal nodes, again, your single digits on the opposite side of the chest. And again, just the further away the tumor seems to have spread from the primary site, the higher the number.
1: And and I think one of the biggest things that made it simple for me that one of the attendings at Rouleau said is double digit N1, single digit lymph node N2, and contralateral N3. And th- there, there are some different nuances. You'll see like a supraclavicular nodal involvement is also N3, but again, you'll start to internalize those. And that's the only other one that, that I think that one of the attendings told me to remember is just remember that supraclavicular is also N3. So in my head, double-digit lymph node, N1, single-digit lymph node, N2, and a contralateral or supraclavicular is N3. And the last thing is the M stage, and the M stage tells us if we have distant disease outside of the chest. Do we have metastatic disease? And in lung cancer, fortunately, we have patients who have metastatic disease who are still curable, and those are the patients who have one site of metastatic disease, which we call M1B, and some patients who have something called M1A, which means they might have what we call a synchronous metastasis or a, another cancer in the contralateral lung, and they can still be cured, or what used to be called a wet stage 3 back in the day. One of my attendings just told me that, but I never lived through that. But now we call that a M1A, and that's if you have a pleural infu- infusion involvement or a pericardial effusion involvement, and those patients are still curable. The only time that we say in lung cancer that we worry that the patients are undergoing palliative chemo and are not curable is when they have multiple sites of metastatic disease, which is M1C. And just
2: imagine that, you know, in our lifetimes, we've seen the the treatment of metastatic cancer go from, you know, purely palliative therapy, purely talking about, okay, we can keep this tumor at bay, but we can't get rid of it forever. And now we're talking about curing metastatic patients. I can't wait until we're talking about curing M1Cs.
0: And to simplify things a little bit, I was just going to remind our listeners about how we then stage small cells. So small cell, a much more aggressive disease, but a much simpler staging algorithm. There's only two flavors. It's either limited stage, which means that the mass can fit in one radiation field. And we'll talk about what that term means in a later episode. And then the other option is that it's extensive stage, i.e. it doesn't fit in one radiation field. So truly a lot simpler, and it'll make a lot more sense when we talk about small cell lung cancer and the treatment of how we how we take care of someone with small cell. And one of the easiest ways that I remembered it is
1: that small cell, to definitively treat it, you need chemo plus radiation. So if it doesn't fit in a radiation field, then it's extensive stage disease because that's the only way that we know to really cure these patients with small cell.
0: So guys, putting all this incredibly important information together, I thought I would just quickly recap kind of what we did for our patient and where we're at now. And so for this patient with non-small cell lung cancer that is adenocarcinoma, The first thing that I did, as we've been encouraging our listeners to do for a while now, is pull up that NCCN document, because that is going to go through all the the nuances and all the details of, of treatment. And then next, after that, I did encourage smoking cessation in this patient. We can't forget about that, because the reality is that if we it seems intuitive, but but patients may not be able to see the relationship there. It's important for us as their oncologist to discuss smoking cessation. Then you know we also want to make sure that we always complete the staging for our lung cancer patients. So that includes getting a CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. However, if you do have a PET scan already, you don't always need to do uh, the the dedicated CT scan. And then. In general, you want to uh, get an MRI of the brain, although there are nuances where we may be able to forego that. But in general, some sort of systemic body imaging as well as an MRI of the brain. And then also as part of that workup, um, you also want to send them to our pulmonary colleagues for more investigational studies, which can not only include um, a biopsy if it's not already done, but also an evaluation of the mediastinum uh, for staging purposes. So kind of putting all this information together for, for our patient, I think that based on this information that we have, so his 1.6 centimeter mass, he had station 7 disease and no evidence of metastatic disease that was distant from the lungs. So based on my interpretation of that data and looking at the chart, which we will link in our show notes, I think that he had a T1B. N2, M0, and if I'm not mistaken, that puts him at a stage 3A.
1: Yeah, that was great, and, and I liked how you mentioned that it was a single-digit lymph node, so that's N2. And in terms of whether it's stage 1, stage 2, stage 3, always look up the, the NCCN guidelines, and the earlier the stage, the more likely you can treat that patient with some form of local therapy, whether that's surgery or radiation.
0: All right, guys. Well, I, th- I think that just about covers all my questions about histology and staging. I think maybe we should save the discussion about treatment for, for another day. What do you all think? Yeah, I think it's a great idea.
2: Yeah, I agree. And that was a great recap.
0: So any closing remarks, guys?
1: I'm just glad to have Dan back and, and everybody watch Ratatouille. It's a, great, it's a good show. And <laughs> eat quesadillas in the hospital. That's the last thing I'm going to say.
2: Yeah, definitely checking out the grill area of the hospital cafe is usually a good call as long as you're not on a diet or counting calories. And hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on Instagram. We're out there. We want to hear from you guys. We want to know what you think. And uh, if we need to change anything, we need to hear from you.
0: Definitely. We love hearing from our listeners. But that's all we got for today. So until next time, listeners, we'll see you later.
2: See you later. Peace.